In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the dangers of getting out and about. We weave for you our darkest fare, tales both wild and manic. We hope for you a chill they bring with nightmares, fear, and panic. Of horrors deep, of chilling moods and angst so dark and tragic. All that's left is but to say now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a mother and her two daughters who are making an extra effort to visit grandma regularly. It's nice catching up with elderly relatives, even if they're not doing so well. But in this tale, shared with us by author A.C. McAnally, it's when the family goes to leave that the strangeness begins. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Aaron Lillis, Erica Sanderson, and Jessica McAvoy. So pay attention to the rituals your daughters are engaging in. They might seem totally harmless, but there's a reason Grandma's getting anxious, especially when she sees her granddaughter stand by the tree. Riley had stood by the tree every afternoon all summer and fall. At first, she didn't really know what it was and wanted to explore, like any three-year-old would. She ran her hands over the bark and picked at sticks while she stood by it. She might have even talked to it a few times, which would explain the events leading up to that horrible night. I remember the dilemma, the reason she stood by the tree. The tree stood in my mother's yard, and we visited frequently. We would sit in her garden, help her plant the seeds or repot her cooking greens. The girls loved it. We were so happy to spend time with my mother, especially after her cancer scare. Eight weeks of radiation hadn't gotten rid of the tumor, just shrunk it. But a miracle happened during the last scan that showed no tumor at all. We were so thankful. After that, we started visiting my mother even more. 
Most days, I walked the girls out by myself when we were ready to go home. With mom in remission, I didn't want to pain her. I loaded Lily in her car seat before we stepped outside, ready to take her to the truck and just place the seat in the base. Riley would walk beside me. I hated Riley standing by the truck as I loaded Lily, but I also hated putting Lily on the ground while I buckled Riley in. One day, Riley found a compromise. Riley pointed to the lone hickory tree in the front yard. Tree? It had mulch around it, outlined in red bricks with a few out of place from lack of care. She liked to touch it, to feel the roughness of the bark. I nodded in agreement. Okay, yeah, go ahead, but stay there while I put Lily in the truck. She ran off to the tree with her daycare backpack bouncing back and forth. As I walked to the truck, she climbed over the bricks into the mulch. For about 10 seconds, I couldn't see her while I put Lily in. Thankfully, Lily's car seat base was easy. I just had to throw her seat in at a certain angle and the base would latch on with several clicks. Then I would be right back around and ready to grab Riley and put her in. All right, Riley, your turn. Riley poked her head around the tree to look at me, but giggled <laughs> as she snapped back out of view. You better come here or I'm going to get you. I let her run once around the tree, the mulch crunching beneath her feet, before I scooped her in my arms and tickled her as I walked to the truck. Her laugh could instantly heal my soul on a bad day. She never fought me to get in the truck if I let her go to the tree first, so we made it our afternoon routine. As we walked out of my mom's house, Riley would run to the tree and stand there until I was done putting Lily in. My mom didn't like it, though. She's going to get hurt one of these times. Just let me help. But she loves playing around that tree. Worst case scenario, she falls and hits the mulch. Maybe the bricks. But she'll be fine. My mother wasn't convinced. She made a point to stand on her porch steps and watch since I wouldn't let her help. All that summer and fall, that's what we did. Until eventually, my mom only sometimes stepped out to watch. Daylight savings time contributed to that horrible night. All during the fall semester of the school year, when I reached mom's at five in the evening, the sun would still be in the western sky. That winter, however, when time changed, the sun was down by five. The sky would still be pink and orange with its rays, but twilight would be upon us. I didn't know the darkness mattered. I had no way of knowing, except for my mother. She had tried to warn me. She was washing dishes as I hand-dried them. She didn't even look up from her sink. Don't let Riley stand by that tree after dark. That tree can hurt her. Her tone made me take her seriously. How, Mom? She was quiet for a moment. She could scrape her knee, or cut her arm, or worse, crack her skull open on the bricks. I don't know why you don't get rid of those bricks anyway. Rocks would be more organic to hold the mulch in. I don't disturb that tree. I know Riley doesn't really disturb it either, but she needs to be careful around it and not be messing in the dark on it. All right, Mom. You and the girls are all I have left. Gotta take care of each other. Yeah, yeah. She was feeling sappy, and I wanted no part of it. I tried to stay away from talking about the past and just move on. The girls and I will need to be leaving soon. Mom nodded. 
You finish up dishes while I give goodbye lovin's then. I plunged my hands into the dingy sink water while my mom walked into the living room. Riley was coloring with crayolas and Lily was in her bouncer. Mom took Lily out of her bouncer and let her draw with Riley. Riley was good about sharing, but Lily would rather stick the crayon in her mouth. No, no, sissy. Riley was good at protecting Lily. She was never jealous. Riley was very patient with me when it came to Lily meeting me. I had two amazing kids. That night, I thought I was down to one. We ready to leave. I had Lily in the car seat, and Riley had my other hand as we walked down the porch stairs. My mom returned to the kitchen to hand dry the dishes I finished washing. Tree? I'm sorry, baby. Not tonight. I held her hand tight as we walked towards the truck. Riley tugged on me. Tree? No, baby. Now come on. I was almost to the truck when she tugged hard. Peace, mom. Peace. My heart melted. Riley said, please. The year before, Riley had been struggling to say certain words and religiously avoided them. Please was one of them. For her to be desperate enough to say please broke me. Okay, baby, but stay where I can see you. She smiled wide enough I couldn't see her eyes as she nodded and bound over to the tree. I made a point to move quicker than usual getting Lily in. As I heard the click of the car seat into its base, I heard Riley thud on the ground. Her crying didn't follow. Riley? I shut the door and walked around the truck enough to see her. Riley sat in the mulch with her arms stretched out towards me. Boo-boo, Mom. That's when I saw it. I couldn't see it clearly in the dark, but the porch light caught one side of it. A figure stood behind her, tall and lanky, with arms like tree branches. Head was the wrong word for what sat atop its body, but I couldn't clearly make out what it was. It didn't matter. All that mattered was it was something that shouldn't be there and should not be that close to my daughter. It happened in seconds. I bolted around the truck, screaming Riley's name. Riley never saw it. Her eyes were fixated on me until the thing wrapped an arm around her waist. She didn't have time to get a full scream out, and in a blink I realized I wouldn't make it to her in time. All I could do was try to follow. It lifted her as it stepped behind the tree into the dark. No, not behind the tree. Oh, dear God, it was pulling her into the tree. Her scream was cut off by her body disappearing into the trunk. I watched as the bark enveloped her, branches creaking and leaves rustling with the movement. I reached out as I ran towards her, but it had already taken her all in. My body slammed hard into the tree as I tried frantically to follow. I pulled at the bark, scratching until my nails bled. I was still in shock, but I had to try to get her back. Riley! Riley! Tears streamed down my face, blurring my vision, but I kept at the tree. Oh God, please give her back. Tell me what to do. I'll do anything. Just give her back, please. Move. I recognized it was my mother speaking, but I kept shredding the tree bark. I was numb to the pain of it, so when she pushed me over, I didn't realize she had until I could no longer see the tree. I laid parallel to the ground for a moment until I regained some composure to tell my mom what happened. Something took her inside that damned tree. I know, baby. I'm sorry I didn't tell you. 
I warned you to keep her away. I noticed then that my mother had a dagger in her left hand. The Hamadryad took her. The... the what? Hamadryad. The Hickory Hamadryad. It showed up one night, and I've been taking care of it. It's the reason the garden is as beautiful as it is. It's the reason I'm in remission. I was momentarily focused on the reality of this thing. I've been here a thousand times. Why haven't I ever seen it before? It only comes out at night if it's offered something. I usually give it small rodents. The offering ensures the Hamadryad's work on me and the land. It saw Riley as an offering. Why the hell would you keep something that would hurt anybody? That just took your granddaughter! She lifted the dagger over her head and raised her opposite arm. I know, but I'll get her back. She sliced her palm open with the weapon. And when I do, you immediately need to raise it. I had been thinking about destroying it for a long time. But it's just like a bear, just trying to live. She smeared her bloody hand against the tree. Almost immediately, the tree reacted. The branches swayed in ways they shouldn't have. Its branches and trunk turned towards my mother and hunched over her. It creaked as the tree opened to make way for the Hamadryad's head. I saw it clearly in the porch light. It was a clump of twigs, grown over each other in a spherical shape. Two small fingers of the twigs left holes that looked like eye sockets, but there were no eyes. I froze at the sight of it, scared for my mother, but couldn't do anything. Give her back. Take this instead. Pound for pound. My mother sliced down her forearm and held it out to the creature. I didn't understand her intent until I heard her words. I started to cry again. No, there has to be another way. My mother looked to me. It's my fault to atone for. Destroy it once Riley is back. I love you. The creature grabbed my mother's arms with its branches. It leaned its head down, seeming to sniff her blood. A leaf bent down from the mass of twigs and ran itself along her arm. My God, the leaf was its tongue. It was tasting her blood. This offering is only for the girl, not the garden, not for you. Its voice was very raspy and guttural. I could hear sticks rubbing against each other as it spoke, as if sticks were its vocal cords. I understand. The tree went still for a moment, pondering what to do. It turned its head and sighed. That's when it hit me. In its own sick way, the thing cared for my mother. After months of her taking care of it, I'm sure it saw her as its source of preservation, a nurturer. It didn't want to take her. Pound for pound. It pulled her in towards the tree, but not completely. The wounded arm and the opposite leg disappeared into the bark. I had never heard my mother scream like that. It broke me from my fear, and I went to her. I reached around her waist and pushed myself against her back. If I started to feel her being pulled in, I was going to pull back. I was afraid pulling immediately would just hurt her more. The creature was only taking pieces of her. How much would be left, and if she could survive from her wounds, was left to be seen. I held my mother as she screamed, and I screamed with her. 
The creature released my mother, and we fell back into the mulch and bricks. With one arm secured around my mom, I backpedaled us a few more feet away. But I had to see. I had to see if my Riley came back. It was quiet again. The tree turned back to its natural stance, gently rustling, less creaking than before. Then, nothing. No sound. No movement. I couldn't wait. I stepped back up to the tree, pounding on the trunk. Where's my daughter? Give me my daughter! I felt the throbbing mass of pain that was my hands now. I stopped pounding them into the tree and just fell forward against it. I turned as I let myself collapse to the ground against it. I held my hands up to my face and laid my head in them. My mother was in front of me, bleeding out on the ground, and my daughter was still gone. For the first time since it all started, I heard Lily crying in the truck. I don't know how long she had been crying or how much she slept through. I turned my head to look towards Lily in the truck, and I saw Riley sitting on the ground, leaned against the tire. Riley! I got to my feet and ran over to her. I picked her up and she immediately jolted awake. I chuckled with relief as I started to cry all over again. I held her and rocked her for a moment. She hugged me back like the sweetheart she was. Tree? I turned to look at the tree. Really look at the tree. There was more creaking, but it wasn't moving like it had before. This time, it was growing. The branches and trunk all grew at an alarming rate, gaining at least five feet in height, and the branches now reached into the neighbor's yard. No, baby. No more tree. I buckled her in the car and then rummaged through the diaper bag and grabbed one of Lily's onesies. I went back to my mother. She was pale from the loss of blood, but still conscious. Her arm was gone from the shoulder, but her leg was only taken a few inches above the knee. I took my shirt off and tied it around her leg. I put the onesie in my mom's remaining hand and forced it against her bleeding shoulder. Hold it as tight as you can until I come back. I ran off into the garage. I grabbed the gas can for the tiller. Thankfully, it still had some gas. I turned to the small propane grill in the corner. There was a long neck lighter beside it. I grabbed it and one of the metal spatulas hanging off the grill and ran back out into the front yard. My hands shook, but I still flicked it on with ease and held the spatula over it. The flame burned long and bright. I moved it around all the edges of the spatula until the flames licked the metal black. I leaned down and removed the onesie from Mom's shoulder. Brace yourself. I pressed the spatula against her arm. She only moaned in pain this time. Her energy spent. I had to hurry. The spatula did its job. The bleeding didn't stop, but it slowed. I put the onesie back over it, picked up the gas tank, and headed towards the tree. I took the spout off the gas can and threw the gas onto the trunk. It took a few times to empty it all, but I managed to do it in seconds. I reignited the lighter. I bent down to place the lighter against the mulch. Before the lighter touched down, the hamadryad reached out and grabbed my hand. I looked up and found myself face to face with it. Don't. Without me, your mother will die. I met its empty eyes. I refused to look away. 
I needed it to see it wouldn't stop me. Even if it never let me go and I burned up with it, it wouldn't stop me. Say goodbye to the tree, Riley. Bye, tree. It tightened its grip on my wrist, but not soon enough. I dropped the lighter into the mulch. Before the lighter went out, it sparked the ground and spread quickly. The hamadryad screeched and let me go. I stumbled away, back to my mother. I went to my mother. She was shaking, stone cold and pale. I put pressure on her shoulder. I finally had the presence of mind to call the cops, but apparently a neighbor had already called. I held my mother in my lap. I'm sorry I didn't listen to you. I'm so sorry. Not your fault. I shouldn't have taken care of it. I should have known this would happen. I thought it would be the last time I spoke to her, so I hugged her tight, her blood sticking to my skin. I love you so much. Thank you for getting Riley back. She will know your sacrifice. She will know how much you love her. What? You think I'm dying? Please, this is just a flesh wound. The cops were in the yard now. Their blue and white lights blinded me as they pulled up. I heard screaming but couldn't make it out. I was too focused on my mother, on her smiling face as she slowly lost consciousness. Cops pulled her away from me as they called the ambulance. One sat with her, and another was trying to ask me what happened. But I was an inconsolable wreck, and I couldn't answer any questions. I just went to my girls. The cop escorted me to my truck, where I told him my girls were waiting. I sat and held them while we waited for the ambulance to get there and haul my mom off. The cops followed. I was the last one to leave. I looked one more time at the tree. At this point, I couldn't hear the screaming anymore. And if the cops ever heard it, then they just mistook it for something else. I didn't see any movement other than the flames. And for an instant, I thought I saw its head and one arm reaching out to me. Then it was gone. Some miracle saved my mother, despite her massive blood loss. She swore it was the Hamadryad's last offering to her, as a way to make amends. It disturbed me that she would put it in such a positive light, but I let it go. The next afternoon, I finished the job and took an axe to what remained of the tree. I even dug up the roots. I wanted no part of that thing left in one piece. I convinced my mother to move in with the girls and I, but that still wasn't far enough away. We decided to move back to the city, where the trees were few and far between. Still, the girls stayed around the play equipment at the park, never went into the trees, and if they were on a field trip somewhere outside, I offered to chaperone. I didn't want the girls to live in fear, but I still felt a chill wash over me if the trees swayed just a little too low.
On episode 7 of this season, we presented the story, The Black Bag Job. In this sequel to that story, our locksmith for hire hides out at his apartment, waiting for the repercussions after meddling in the supernatural. When nothing happens, he begins to look for work once more. And, as shared with us by author Jeff Miller, he's offered a particularly difficult job. Break into a police station's evidence locker and remove evidence of an apparent drug deal. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Mick Wingert, and Nicole Doolin. So join our locksmith as he tries his luck. After all, he does have that special new tool he acquired. So let's listen as he uses a hand of glory for fun and profit. It's been a while since we spoke, so let me catch you up. See, I was hired by this creepy fellow in an orange hoodie to crack a safe in a bizarre jewel heist. I had to wear a black bag with no eye holes the entire time. Weird, right? Unfortunately, I didn't quite follow his directions to the letter. See, I opened the bag I was supposed to steal, because I could tell it wasn't full of jewels. Yeah, yeah, I know. Curiosity killed the cat and all that. Whatever. You weren't there. It was a fucked up situation. You don't like it? You can sue me. Anyway, it was full of marbles, and each one had the severed head of a plastic action figure embedded inside. I thought it was weird, but hey, I got paid, so I didn't think much of it, until one of them kept turning up in my stuff, even though I had never touched any of them. I threw it down a sewer. I busted it up with a hammer, even melted it in a pan. The marble didn't care. It kept turning up. Shit got really dark, and before it was all over, some woman who spoke through the mouths of other people... Well, not just people. She talked through other stuff, too. It tickled me Elmo. A fast food drive through Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. I never met her in person and she scared the shit out of me. But, she wasn't all bad. Without her help, the guy in the orange hoodie would have carved me up like a standing roast. It was pretty fucked up. Especially when I received a box the next morning at my apartment that contained a moth-eaten orange hoodie and a candle made from the left hand of the hoodie's late owner that still wore his cheap class ring. To top it all off, my new boss also included the note on flowered stationery, telling me that she had big plans for me. I burned the hoodie and safely stored the candle hand, which I later learned is more properly called a hand of glory, and I holed up in my apartment for a few weeks, eating nothing but top ramen and overripe bananas. I never heard a peep. No talking dolls, no messages through the radio, no strange packages. Finally convinced the thread had lifted, I burned through the sack of cash like an August brush fire. Every day was a party until I finally got a glimpse of the bottom of the bag and grudgingly put out the word I was available for work. After a couple of days, I got a lead from an acquaintance I'd known for years. 
Dear spooky old Maeve. Maeve works the night shift at a 24-hour coin-op laundromat. Usually these kinds of places don't hire an attendant, but the laundromat lies just over the invisible border that separates my generally safe neighborhood from one that's significantly more dangerous. Maeve is security. She doesn't look like much. Pale, short, thin, in her late 60s. But don't think Maeve is some helpless old lady. She carries a switchblade in her purse. A teenager high on crystal tried to rob the place a few years back, and even though the little tweaker was strapped, he left the laundromat on a stretcher. Most of him, anyway. That night, I was the only soul there just after sundown, moving my load from the washer to the dryer, when Maeve walked in to start her shift. My little locksmith, it's been a while. What, you've been washing your clothes in the sink? I started to answer, but she shushed me with the wave of her hand. Never mind, I hear you're looking for work. That's right. You got something for me? I might. She shuffled over to the bench and sat down next to me. We watched my laundry spin for a few minutes. Well? My boy got into some trouble. You have a son? If you get the guns and the coke out of the evidence room, you can keep the cash. Wait, what? It should be about $100,000. They busted him resupplying. Three pistols, an AR-15, and two kilos of coke along with the cash. You can do this, right? You want me to rob a police station? Not the whole thing, just the evidence room. You know they don't just close the station up at night, right? That there's never a time it's not crawling with cops? Come on, I heard you worked with Mr. Scrappy. This should be easy. Who? Dumpy guy, dirty orange hoodie, wore a baseball cap. His name was Mr. Scrappy? Like, the garbage disposal? She shrugged dismissively. We were both quiet while my underwear made a half a dozen revolutions in the dryer. A hundred thousand is a lot of money, especially when you don't have to split it. But they'll probably move the cash from the evidence room to a more secure location downtown soon. So you should really get on it. And with that, Maeve sat down behind her desk and cracked open a paperback. When my laundry was done, I stuffed it in my bag and told her I'd let her know. Maeve didn't look up. She just nodded. After I'd put away my laundry, I headed to my favorite Irish pub... But instead of playing darts with the boys, I took my pint from Ben and sat alone by a window to think. I checked my phone for stories about the bust. Maeve wasn't lying. A 19-year-old kid named Niall Kelly had been arrested just the day before with a couple of Armenians I vaguely recognized. The cash, the cocaine, the guns, it all checked out. What I couldn't figure is why a couple of dead-eyed gangsters were doing business with a kid who, so far as I knew, wasn't in the game. Or if he was, I'd never heard of him. I waved at Ben, and he came over to my spot with another pint. I showed him my phone. Ben, you ever see this kid around? He's definitely not old enough to drink. You're hilarious. Have you seen him? I don't think so. Why? He missing or something? Nah, 
Police have him. Huge pile of cash, guns, and a couple kilos of coke. Trying to figure out why he was doing business with the Armenians. Huh. Figured they'd eat that scrawny little guy alive. Must be more to him than it looks. By the way, you got anything for me? Not unless you want a third beer. I waved him away. He went back to wiping down the bar and watching the game. I knew that police station pretty well. I mean, I'm good at what I do. But after a while, even a quiet crook like myself ends up on the local cop's radar. I'd been pulled in a few times for questioning, but they've never been able to charge me with anything. Maeve was right. It was a lot of money. And I did have that handy new toy from my boss, who, by the way, hadn't contacted me once since she sent along that little gift. Ben, give me a double shot at Jameson. About an hour later, I was back at home sitting on the toilet, working up the nerve to open my safe. I could still feel the shots, but the liquid courage they had provided was gone. Fuck it. I removed the loose towel behind the tank, flipped the switch underneath, and went to the kitchen, where I pushed the fridge away from the wall. A panel on the backside was ajar, and behind it was a small safe. There was only one thing inside that particular safe. A severed hand with wicks protruding from all five fingers, and a gaudy class ring embedded in the appropriate digit. My hand of glory. I only had the faintest idea of how to use the thing, but for a hundred grand, I figured I could puzzle it out on the fly. First things first, I needed to run a test. I set up my phone on the bookshelf and set it to record video. Gingerly, I picked up the hand. I didn't like touching the thing. It was cold and waxy like a candle, but it also had the give and softness of flesh. It made me feel nauseous. Grimacing, I flicked my lighter and lit the thumb's wick. It bathed my living room in a sick pale yellow glow. In that putrid light, the world was hazy and dim, like I was peering through a piece of gauze that had covered a seeping wound. By then, I felt downright sick to my stomach, but thinking about $100,000 cash helped me find the will to soldier on. I lit the other four digits, which heightened the effect, and stepped into my iPhone's frame. Unlike a normal candle, no wax dripped down the sides as the wick burned down, and it gave off no scent as it melted. I hadn't even let it burn a full minute before blowing it out, but the flames had consumed each finger halfway to the first bend. I picked up my phone and watched the video. It showed my living room, lit only by a floor lamp in the corner. After 50 seconds had passed, like magic, I appeared on screen. I grinned, slipped on my lucky Sandy Koufax jersey, and placed the hand of glory and a lighter in my tool bag. It was time to get to work. The precinct house was five blocks from my apartment, so I walked, which gave me time to think. It was a little after 1am and the street was deserted. 
Given how fast my gruesome trinket had burned, I guessed I had 15, maybe 20 minutes max before it would be used up completely. I don't like working fast, but at least I wouldn't have to worry about being stealthy. I could see the surveillance cameras mounted outside the station. Working quickly while making sure I never ventured into their view, I lit all five wicks and jogged to the main entrance. The candle flames never flickered. I stepped inside, leading with the candle, which filled the tiny reception area with its corpse light. The officer behind the desk sat frozen, eyes unblinking, not even breathing so far as I could tell. So far, so good. Delicately, I reached through the window around the paralyzed cop to the back of the desk, felt around for the button, pushed it, and heard the buzzer. Evidence was on the second floor across from the interrogation rooms, so after I slipped through the door, I made my way toward the stairwell past a series of offices, only a few of which were occupied. Every so often, as I approached an open office door, I'd hear the clattering of a keyboard or a mumbled conversation, which ceased as soon as the light of my candle infected their space. I peeked inside a few, and the cops looked like wax museum statues. One had a cup of coffee to his lips mid-sip, and the steaming brown liquid poured down his chin. As soon as he was out of my line of sight, I heard a yelp, followed by a curse and shattering ceramics. I chuckled, despite myself. The candle had burned down beyond the second bend of each finger, so I hustled up the stairs. The sign on the wall opposite the stairway door pointed left for evidence. Walking briskly, I cleared the empty hallway and entered the evidence storage reception area. It too was deserted. Evidence is never deserted. I walked around behind the desk and saw the evidence inventory database was up on the screen. The guns were in locker 413 and the coke and money in 343. I memorized the numbers. I also searched the desk for the keys, but, uh, no luck. Well, that's why I brought my tools. My candle had lost its thumb, and the fingers were half-inch stubs. We'd be at the knuckles in a couple of minutes, so I knew I had to speed things up. Turns out, I didn't have to break into secure evidence storage because the door was ajar. Which, again, was not normal. So I entered the room, leading with the sickly glow of the candle. Something was rustling towards the back of the middle row of lockers. Without fear, I sought out the noise. In the pale light, I saw what I assumed to be the evidence room officer convulsing on the floor. A package of white powder by her side. A penknife was beside her, and I could see a fine slit on one end of the package through which ivory powder was leaking. My stomach suddenly felt as if it were full of sloshing ice water. Why was this poor woman not frozen in the light of my hand of glory? Maybe because she was unconscious? Hell, I didn't know the rules for this thing. In any case, she didn't seem to pose a threat. While she gently thrashed on the floor, I took a closer look at the coke. I don't deal in drugs. The big shots in that business are a bunch of hair-trigger sociopaths. 
and the time you face if you fuck up is way too heavy for me. But I've still seen my fair share of cocaine. This was not cocaine. My mother had kept a huge vegetable garden, and had spent a lot of time tending it with her before she died. So I know bone meal when I see it. And judging by the coarse white dust all over the convulsing cop's nose, she'd snorted a line. I guess she thought she needed a bump to make it through the night shift, but I didn't see how anyone could have confused this shit with coke. I'd also never heard of bone meal causing a seizure. But then again, I'd never known anyone who inhaled a snootful of the stuff. But if the bones were old and hadn't been properly handled, I, I guessed consuming it could set up a nasty infection pretty quick. Plus, this powder was coarse. I imagine it could do some serious physical damage to the lungs. Behind the cop was an open locker and a shrink-wrapped package of cash. Strange-looking cash. Board game cash, to be exact. I checked the number of the locker, 343. I scanned the row, and locker 413 was just at the other end. That lock was a sense to crack. It contained three toy pistols sporting orange plastic caps and a super soaker rifle. It was at this point that my head began to feel all fucked up. I picked up one of the pistols with my free hand and looked it over. On the underside, symbols had been crudely scratched into the plastic. I'm not proud to say that I flinched at the sudden sound and dropped the toy. A bullet embedded itself in the wall behind me. The toy gun was gone. The 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol lay where it should have been on the floor. Its companions in the locker revealed themselves to be an AR-15, a snub-nosed 45, and a 38 revolver. I glanced over toward the cop, and it was clear, even from this distance, that the package was full of something that looked exactly like cocaine. The Monopoly money had been replaced by genuine greenbacks. I calmed myself down as best I could, and had just gotten my breathing under control when two officers burst through the doors, guns drawn. They froze as soon as they stepped into the candlelight. I threw up in my tool bag. Messy, but I didn't want to leave any evidence, especially DNA. Wiping my mouth, I saw that ugly class ring on the ground beside my shoe. The candle had finally consumed all four fingers, releasing the embedded ring which had dropped to the floor. I picked up the ring and also grabbed the 22. But it was once again a toy gun. The coke was bone meal. The cash was play money. I looked behind me. A slug of orange foam stuck halfway out of the concrete wall. I was running my finger over the foam slug when the room suddenly became far too silent. I realized that I could no longer hear the cop convulsing. I turned, slowly. The officer's chest was rising and falling, but not all at once. To be honest, it looked as if her shirt was at a slow boil. A segmented creature with at least a dozen legs slipped out from between her buttons, followed by more vermin. 
few of which emerged from holes they chewed through the fabric. I quickly gathered everything up, stuffed it in my polluted bag, and ran through the frozen tops. By the time I made it to evidence reception, I heard screaming behind me, followed by gunfire. I doubled my pace. The hand had burned halfway down to the palm by the time I blew it out in an alley a couple of blocks from the station. When I got home, I locked all my deadbolts and turned off the electricity at the breaker box. I knew it wouldn't do any good, but it made me feel marginally safer. I lit a few candles, the normal kind, made of beeswax from the corner store. I laid out all the shit on my kitchen table. Touched the ring, and I've got a bunch of toys and a couple pounds of disgusting fertilizer. Release the ring. I've got guns, cash, and coke. It would have been hilarious if I was stoned. My stomach dropped. Nothing good comes from a visitor at two in the morning. I sat still. The apartment was silent for 47 seconds. I know, because I was staring at my watch the entire time. And then the knocks returned with such force it sounded like the door might crack. Okay, okay, take it easy. Come in, just give me a second to get to the door. But by the time I'd gone down the hall, Maeve was already inside. And the door was still closed. You got it? I wanted to speak, but couldn't find my voice. Yeah. You got it. She pushed me gently out of her way and walked to the kitchen, as if the apartment were hers. Maeve, what the hell? How do you know where I live? I stared at the locked deadbolts. How did you get past my fucking door? She looked back over her shoulder at me and gestured toward the chair at the table. You will not interfere. Her eyes were feral with terror. It felt as if I were looking at a friend trapped at the bottom of a very deep well. It unnerved me deeply. I shut my mouth and sat down. Maeve pulled a black sharpie from her pocket and picked up the sack of powder. She drew a thick line across the back of the package as if she were spoiling a barcode. In an instant, the cocaine transformed into bone meal. Then, she got down on her hands and knees, drew a perfect circle on the floor around herself, and said something I didn't understand. The air immediately stank of ozone. She stood up and dumped the entire bag of bone meal inside the circle, covering her feet. Not a speck fell outside the black border. Maeve began speaking in a language I did not understand, while pulling objects from her coat. The candles flickered and blew out, but I could still see Maeve. A pale blue light emanated from both the pile of bone dust and the objects she had dropped on top of the pile. The beetle husk, a couple of plane cards, a gun, and several other things I couldn't make out. The glow increased in intensity until it climaxed with a loud pop. And all light vanished. Maeve screamed in the darkness until she was abruptly silenced. When the candles reignited a moment later, 
Maeve was immersed in a swarm of buzzing, chewing insects that formed a perfect, living column from floor to ceiling. I caught one last glimpse of Maeve's panicked, pleading eyes before she was completely engulfed. The bone meal began to stir, and tendrils of the coarse dust spiraled up and through the writhing mass, increasing in thickness and number until they had wormed their way entirely through the length and breadth of the column. All at once... Both Swarm and Bonemeal collapsed into a glowing human form so bright it hurt my eyes, forcing me to close them. When I was able to open them again, a short, plump woman in her late fifties or early sixties sat across from me at the table, smiling contentedly. That was good work, my burglar. I'm almost grateful you tried to steal me. <laughs> I took a breath. I was having trouble thinking straight. Where's Maeve? Maeve is gone. Well, not gone exactly. It's like where the hog went that you put into a meat pie. The hog is there, but it's not there. And once you eat it, the hog is you, but not you. I enjoyed driving her. She was by far the best candidate that you found for me. Found for you? Well, yes, dear. You're my anchor. I enter all through your eyes. You should be pleased. No one is going to harm you if I can help it. You're too important. (laughs) What? What the hell are you? Her eyes lit up at the question, and her pudgy face blushed with pride. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. Then she laughed, long and inhuman, which made me cower even more deeply in my chair. She stopped, wiping tears from her eyes. He was a rotten little prig. But Howard knew more about us than he realized. She walked to the kitchen and poured herself a glass of tea from the fridge. You read the Bible? I didn't respond. Well, there's a verse you should remember. Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Sounds better in the original Hebrew. Here's the lesson. Don't touch that filthy dead man's ring in my presence ever. If you value your mind. I pulled my hands back from the table where the ring lay and placed them on my lap. She stood up and stretched. Oh, you have no idea how hard it was to find my bones. Much less get them ground in the proper way and shipped here. 
I really do appreciate your work. I don't make mistakes very often, but I didn't think to check whether the Armenians were under police surveillance. Thankfully, you turned out to be exactly the tool I required. <laughs> she picked up one of the bundles of cash and tossed it to me. Best use this soon. The spell will fade with the next full moon. She picked up another bundle and caressed it thoughtfully. It's too bad. I was rather looking forward to seeing how their organization reacted when their payment turned into children's toys. <laughs> what about Maeve's son? He's gonna want to know what happened to his mother. What if Maeve mentioned me to him? What if he comes looking for me? The boy? She rolled her eyes. Ah, uh, a messenger. Barely human. Maeve had no children. Don't worry about him. We sat in silence while she examined her outfit. A fuzzy plump sweater with brown nylon slacks. I ventured a final, timid question. What should I call you? I have many names. Nurgle. Beelzebub. Legion. Reshef. But in this form, I go by Mildred. You may call me Millie if you prefer. She walked to the front door and undid the deadbolts. I'll be in touch, my pet. I didn't join with a body just for the pleasure of it. She opened the door. I'm here to make things right. And with that, she left. The deadbolts clicked shut, and all my candles went out again. I sat in the darkness for a very long time before I felt my way to the bedroom, where I shivered under the covers until daylight bled through my blinds. Only then did I finally fall asleep. they weird? Such a small part of the body, but think how weird it would be if we didn't have them. The head contains so much information, means through which we communicate both verbally and with expressions. So a body without a head would be quite weird. But in this tale, shared with us by author Eric Hortwitz, we're faced with the opposite dilemma. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So it's not a robot or an alien on a rampage here. It's something that normally belongs atop the neck. You could call it a real head case. It 
was the riddle of its own existence. That's what it was laughing at. Now I'm pretty sure. It knew, and no one else did. At the very least, I, of all people, should have shared the joke with it. But it was just as unexpected to me as anyone else. The laughing head emerged from the harbor one sweltering August afternoon. Tourists gathered on the docks and lined up for guided trips through old sailing ships. Hungry restaurant goers sat under umbrellas with iced tea and cold salad. Construction crews labored under a crane. In the harbor, a cargo ship merrily steamed along and water taxis darted to and fro. It was, at first, a peculiar shadow under the sea. The tourists noticed it and took pictures, this shape that loomed underneath a cargo ship. Then the water began to churn and boil, and a deep, low noise heaved its way through the salt and foam. On the harbor, you could hear the shouts of sailors as the cargo ship rocked at unsettling angles and finally capsized. The shadow had surfaced, something pink and round and glistening the size of City Hall had emerged from the water with a heaving and gurgling noise as low and loud as an electric bass. It made vibrations that rattled glasses of iced tea and mimosas, and then the screaming began. When people on the harbor could fully see what had emerged from below, it was a gigantic head. There could be no denying it. The cavernous nostrils flared, the vast and gaping maw wide open, letting out great heaving bursts of heavy laughter. Its eyeballs rolled unsettlingly into the backs of their sockets. Christ, they must have been the size of blimps, and the mouth, disgusting rictus plastered on it. Its hair was matted and wet. Seaweed was plastered to its vast forehead, over its ears, on the back of its neck. It bobbed in the waves and rolled over, submerging its face. People could see that the head was totally disembodied. Whatever should have been on the underside of its neck, perhaps a torso or even an open wound, was instead smooth pink flesh. How was this possible? When it emerged again, it was still insensate with laughter. It was totally beside itself. The rhythmic boom of its hysteria caused car alarms to go off blocks away. People on the docks didn't have much time to gawk or take pictures. The head's gigantic bloodshot eyeballs locked onto them, and it gave a massive and grotesque noise, somewhere between a chortle and a moan of pleasure. Then, somehow, through some kind of clenching of its jaws and tightening of its neck muscles, it propelled itself out of the water and careened down onto the docks. With unmistakable evil satisfaction on its monstrous face, it landed on a screaming crowd of people, flattening them instantly and crunching the boardwalk into splinters. It noticed the bulk of the crowd fleeing in terror and, almost squealing with glee, rolled its way onto the main street. 
Its eyes lolled about in its head as it resumed the dreadful laughing. It was heaving with an almost orgasmic pleasure. The broad side of the head slammed down onto a line of cars in a busy intersection. Most were crushed instantly, although some passengers had the sense to run for their lives, to leave their groceries and phones behind them and flee in blind terror. The head rolled a full rotation, cackling even as its face pressed against the pavement, traversing half a city block as it did so. It drooled great gobs of saliva, which descended to the earth in ropes the size of bridge cables, which flung into the air as the face rolled upright again. The destruction it left in its wake was absolute. There was a trail of wrecked buildings, crushed storefronts, hissing power lines and spurting broken pipes, upturned pavement, flattened cars, and people... The people, squashed like insects with gore, trailed over the wreckage like their broken bodies were syrup drizzled over pancakes. If you stared down Main Street, you could see the surreal source of this carnage. The booming noise of the head echoing off of ruined buildings, and less audible but somehow more hideous, the screams of those still fleeing its wake. The head had gained speed and momentum, and by twenty blocks it had careened into a T-intersection. Its chin caught on something, an unfortunate tractor-trailer, and its great mass bounced into midair. Unfortunates inside the skyscraper had gathered at great bay windows, first in confusion at this fleshy, hairy, toothy thing that had been flung their way, then in horror as they saw what exactly it was. When it bounced in the intersection, they caught an amazing, horrible glimpse at their destroyer. They saw it flung up into the air over the intersection and turn a full rotation in midair. Imagine the sight of it. First, they saw the clenched jaw and a massive ear, and then as it got closer, the edges of its plastered smile, then its mountainous nose, then bloodshot eyes, which leered at them with evil anticipation. By impact, the monstrous head faced them dead on. They could count the massive pores the size of craters, see the skin tag bigger than a subway car, notice that the gigantic teeth were off-white and one molar had a massive gold filling. They stared down its cavernous, nonsensical throat, a uvula as big as a helicopter, an esophagus that couldn't possibly lead to anywhere. Then it crashed into the building, and they knew no more. The impact toppled the skyscraper into the one behind it, cratered the whole block. The shockwave flung cars and shattered windows for a mile around, flung rubble and dust into the air at such quantities that it blacked out the sun. At the epicenter of the shockwave, the bruised and battered head had a blacked eye and a bleeding lip. But it was still laughing with an unthinking hysteria. But in came the cavalry. Police cars, sirens blaring, sped down the intersecting boulevard. 
They flew down the road, literally. They came so fast over a hill that rubber left pavement. There were dozens of them. The ones in the front decelerated so quickly at the sight of the carnage that the ones in the back crashed into them. Officers leapt out of their cars and scrambled to hide behind the metal barricade they had inadvertently formed. They trembled as they trained their guns at the horrible, heaving head. The sergeant got out of his car. He crackled something in a megaphone, although everyone only registered it as a high, static, barely audible over the heads, booming laughter. It didn't matter. One officer interpreted it as a signal to fire, and then the floodgates broke. The army of police blared pistols, shotguns. One of them had a mounted machine gun on a turret. Bullets darted across the head's face, but it was barely more than an annoyance to it. Tiny rivulets of blood flecked across the massive expanse of skin on its cheeks and forehead. Its gigantic visage turned sour. Even if it were on a normal-sized head, its expressions would be huge, almost animalistic, not just frowning, but snarling. The eyes, not cold, but glaringly hateful. It puckered its massive mouth and sucked inward, pulling the cops and their cars toward him as though through a straw. The officers strained against the pressure, their hats flying off into the head's mouth. Then their boots left the ground, and they had to hold on to car doors and antennae to keep from being pulled in. No use. The doors and antennae snapped, and they flew, screaming to their fate, with the cars themselves following. When it was done, the head crunched the mass of metal in its mouth and spat out great amalgamations of shrapnel at whoever was left. The sergeant himself was mashed into a spitball with his megaphone and his own cruiser. The jagged, spit-coated projectile flew into the air and took down a helicopter. The only cop left was just a rookie. She pulled out her firearm and raced towards the massive head. While it was distracted, maybe she could dart around the side of it, hide behind some rubble if it got suspicious. Then, when she got a good shot, she could land a bullet right in its eyeball. That would have to do something, surely. <sighs> Foolish. She ran behind an overturned semi and assessed her chances. The head's bloodshot eyeball was in profile. It bugged out as the head spat up ground-up chunks of machinery and asphalt at its fleeing attackers. Now was her shot. Our hero darted out from beyond the wheels, planted two boots shoulder-length from each other on the ground, took careful aim, fired, and... Well, the head stared down at her, and its grin slowly returned into its face. It licked its lips and made what to the young rookie sounded like a yummy noise, like what her toddler son made that morning for his applesauce, but repulsive from this sickening source. Great gobs of drool spilled from the corner of its mouth. Then the head reached out with its tongue, a slab of pink fleshiness as big as her house, scooped her up and swallowed her whole. Then came a strange moment of respite for the terrible head. 
Blood and grime coated its face like a mask. It panted and gasped through its wounds as it surveyed the destruction it caused. The sun had set. The screaming and sirens were all in the distance. To the head it was like white noise. It closed its eyes and panted, letting the distant commotion wash over it. It groaned in peace and satisfaction. Something passed overhead. There, in the heavens, a blazing star. The streak of light caught the head's great and dreadful eye. It gazed upward toward the burst of flame above it. Did it? No that it looked at its own death. It was the jet of a massive ordnance rocket that had been fired from a submarine half an hour before. The missile struck the side of the head immediately above the left temple on what, if normal-sized, would have been a small liver spot. But here was essentially a gigantic bullseye. It landed with laser precision. It didn't even explode until it had burrowed halfway into the flesh and hair. The head bellowed in agony as the side of its skull erupted. It looked like it had been hit with a huge bullet. Chunks of skull, hair, and brain matter rained across the city. Each gruesome piece of gore was itself larger than a bicycle. The broken head slumped over on its side, eyes crossed, monstrous tongue lolling out. It was dead, and so it was done as fast as it had started. Somehow order reasserted itself in the city. The mayor declared a state of emergency for a few days, but he needn't have bothered, really. There were no other heads following the first, nor the rest of its body to contend with. They scraped the bottom of the harbor for any sign of where the mysterious head had come from, but it was no use. Scientists in hazmat suits would make trips into the head's open mouth. They flew drones into the cavernous hole in the skull. What mysteries could they uncover from the physical anatomy of the head? Well... Not a whole lot. It was down to the last cavity and muscle, proportioned exactly like an ordinary-sized head. Biologists remarked on this improbability. I mean, animals of gigantic sizes, even theoretical ones, had to have a completely different system of weight distribution. They, they needed to be heavier on the bottom, with muscles compact in one area and not another, and many other differences to avoid even gravity alone crushing it. The head was doomed from the start. I mean, the simple weight of itself would have caved its skull in eventually. But honestly, that was the least of the scientific questions raised. How, how did it breathe? One question was only partially answered when they cut open the panel of skin and flesh where the throat was. Where there should have been an esophagus on a human being, there they found the smashed and masticated body of the poor rookie. She may have been swallowed whole, but there was nowhere for her to be swallowed whole, too. She would have just stuck there, forever a lump in the head's throat. Why did he eat her? Why eat at all? Answers were not forthcoming. And eventually people moved on.
Yeah. You think that's improbable? That people could move on from something like that? Well, we went to the moon and people stopped caring about that, didn't we? So the head remained in its crater for a long time after that, for days and then weeks and months. People could watch it slowly decay. The eyes melted out of their sockets, the skin turned green and sloughed off. Interior muscles rotted and were pecked clean by birds and insects. The flesh putrefied and split open, maggots and flies occupied every orifice. The stench was unbearable. Long after the city had recovered, officials continued to tape off the former intersection for everyone's hygiene. But that couldn't stop anyone from watching this macabre display. The head was simply too big. Imagine a memento mori quite like that. A decaying skull, unavoidable, as big as any skyscraper. It is particularly jarring for me, though. This whole ordeal has been rough. People still stop and gawk at me in the street as though I wanted or had any control over it. I'm considering moving to a new city. Would plastic surgery be too much? I'm looking in the mirror, grinning just as wide as I can. Maybe I'll attempt to laugh as loud as the head did. I can see the small liver spot over my temple. My skin tag, the pores, the gold filling in the back of my mouth. I remember it, magnified a thousandfold careening through the city. My face, down to the last detail, writ large and causing mayhem. Laughing, laughing the entire time. Just what the hell was it laughing at? There's nothing funny about this at all. night out. Who hasn't gone on one of those and come away with a night of shame, regrets, and the selfies of jumping naked into fountains? But in this tale, shared with us by author Michael David Wilson, we learn about a much more altruistic activity on a night out that nonetheless has devastating consequences. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So remember, no good deed goes unpunished, especially when that good deed involves the fireman. And so we're forced to ask, what would Wesley do? There are three things I remember about that night. Pretty girls in glitzy dresses, cheap drinks, and a fireman crying in the corner. I came to the club for the first two, but 
By the end of the night, all I could think about was the latter. The club was called Envy. It smelt of bad aftershave and cannabis. It used to be the club was called Smack, but local residents had petitioned for a name change thanks to the drug and domestic violence connotations. Despite the gaudy sign outside, everyone still called it Smack. It fit better. I was there with Darren and Phil. We were looking for girls, as per most weekends, knocking back cheap shots of flavoured vodka for £1.50 a go. I'd noticed the fireman on the way in, sitting alone at the table just off the dance floor, but I hadn't thought much of it then, or seen his tears. As the night progressed and the lads danced to auto-tuned pop hits by artists they didn't enjoy with girls they did enjoy, I found myself drawn to the fireman. I don't know why. It wasn't a sexual thing, although he wasn't bad looking. Could have been that I'd never seen a fireman in a nightclub before. Neither the fireman nor the level of his drink had moved in the two-plus hours we'd been there. Right hand fixed around his glass, drink three-quarters full. Perhaps he'd got up and ordered another, or someone had brought him a fresh drink when I wasn't looking, but I didn't think so. I'd been keeping a close eye on him. I was better focusing on the fireman anyway. I never had any luck with women, least not in smack. I'd make out-of-context film references or quote philosophers ruining the few chances I got because I weirded girls out. Things like, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? Or, one morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. How he got in my pyjamas, I don't know. And they'd say things like, what's wrong with him? Is he like all there? Or, is he always like this or just really drunk? I think I should get him a glass of water. I had to talk to the fireman. So knocked back a few more of those paint-stripping vodka shots, bought a bottle of Beck's beer, and headed for his table. I sat in front of him, uninvited, and raised my bottle to acknowledge him. Hey! He looked up, dabbed his eyes with a soggy tissue, eyeliner streaming down his cheeks. I didn't ask why he was wearing eyeliner, didn't point out that dressed like that in a place like this, he'd get a good kicking if he wasn't careful. Rough night? It was a stupid thing to say. Any night you stepped inside smack automatically became a rough night. But I wanted to get him talking and find out what his deal was. Up close it was clear the fireman's outfit was a costume. The reds and yellows were too bright for an actual fireman. There was no one else in the club wearing a fireman's costume, so doubted he was part of a stag do or party. Hadn't seen anyone wearing fancy dress at all, apart from the usual bunny ears or other cutesy headbands some of the ladies wore. I didn't ask about the fireman costume for fear of offending him. What if it was just part of his identity? There was this guy in Birmingham years ago now who'd been dressed as a pirate in Waterstones. When I'd asked him about the costume, he'd started ranting about how it was part of his lifestyle that he was fed up of people taking the piss, that you don't just assume a man dressed as a pirate is in fancy dress, that it was insulting, that I should read up on it, that I should re-evaluate my life, that I should make less assumptions. I don't go to Waterstones anymore. What are you drinking? He looked at his glass, then back to me, shrugged. I've ruined my life. You're too young for that. What are you, 30, 35? My wife's left me, taking the kids. It's all my fault. I've lost my job, lost my best mate, lost all my other mates and all. My fault. All of it. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. 
How are you? You don't know me. How can you be sure of anything? I thought about that and wondered if the two points were connected or if he was making a statement of fact followed by an existential musing. I am no longer sure of anything. If I satiate my desires, I sin, but I deliver myself from them. If I refuse to satisfy them, they infect the whole soul. Are you making a joke? No, that's just what Jean-Paul Sartre said. I'll tell him to fuck off. I can't tell him anything. He's dead. He knocked back his drink. At least the tears had stopped. Say it again, that Jean-Paul thing. Jean-Paul Sartre said, I am no longer sure of anything. If I satiate my desires, I sin, but I deliver myself from them. If I refuse to satisfy them, they infect the whole soul. Satiate my desires. He repeated the words like he was testing the phrase out, seeing how it fit. That's what I did. I satiated my desires with my best mate's wife and here I am. But the joke is we don't even like each other. In fact, we actively dislike each other, but you know what we hated more? Working at the goddamn bank. So he channeled all that anger into fucking, during hours, after hours, wherever and whenever we could. <laughs> Very smart about it though. Got caught on CCTV several times. There's always someone watching, isn't there? Two marriages ruined, two jobs lost, six children devastated that mummy and daddy are splitting up. And to top it all off, Brian wound up in hospital. Brian? Best mate. Well, was. Tried to kill himself when he found out about me and his missus. Brian's not the sharpest knife in the jaw, though. Silly bastard OD'd on the wrong pills. Basically laxatives, so he's... He looked off in the distance and towards the bar. Want another? <sighs> nah, one's enough. He stood up. Thanks for listening. I'm going to call it a night. Or more like a lifetime. Going to wander down to the canal. Now that I've drowned my sorrows, it's... Time to drown myself. His face was deadpan. Couldn't tell if he was making a weird joke. Don't do that. Firemen are supposed to be heroic. They're supposed to save people. Perhaps it's time to save yourself. He let out a chuckle, although in retrospect he was probably sobbing, and patted me on the back before heading out of the club. Darren and Phil were still on the dance floor, preoccupied, having found some girls. There wasn't anything left for me inside Smack, so I headed for the cloakroom to retrieve my coat, before running outside to join the fireman. But he was gone. I could think of little other than the fireman for the weeks that followed. At work, bent over the computer, I'd reflect on our encounter and turn to Google with questions and concerns. I'd meticulously work my way through the obituaries and local news stories for suicides or attempts around the canal and surrounding areas, but never uncovered anything. I'd curse myself for taking a taxi home that night after smack, when I should have taken it to the canal. I blamed alcohol for my lapse in judgement, and at times nearly tricked myself into believing I'd have been less apathetic if I'd have been sober. But I'd only had a few beers, was barely tipsy. The truth is, we tell ourselves lies and invent alternative narratives to justify our mistakes and shortcomings. At my lowest, I'd tell myself I couldn't change the past, only shape the future. That had at least been honest. 
and so visiting the canal became a daily pilgrimage, checking it wasn't cordoned off, that a body hadn't been discovered. I closely scrutinized the waters too, as if perhaps I'd see something others had missed, because others didn't know what they were looking for. But my search was futile. The only out-of-place items floating in the water were Tesco trolleys and discarded beer cans. As the weeks became months, I thought about the fireman less, and my unhealthy obsession with obituaries diminished. Occasionally, I'd see a fireman costume or hear the distant wailing of a fire engine siren and go on an internet binge, just in case. But nothing ever came of it. One year later, during the half-time break at a speed awareness course in Warwickshire, some bloke in a grey polo neck t-shirt approached. I was dunking a rich tea biscuit in pale tea with too much sugar, wishing I was at home with my pregnant girlfriend, Anne-Marie, and not 40 miles away. I'd been caught driving at 34 on a 30-limit road, and for my sins had to endure half a day of PowerPoint presentations, lectures and car crash videos to deter me from ever speeding again. It wasn't working. Well, I never. It's really you. I I thought it was you when you came in, but I couldn't be sure. Oh, hello. I've been thinking about you a lot. I can't believe this. Hey, hey, everybody. He saved my life, he did. Can you believe it? I gobbled up the biscuit, wishing he'd go away, still unable to recognize him, but conscious of the scene he was fast creating. I did what you said. I saved myself. I was going to jump, but I was still wearing the fireman uniform, and I thought, he's right, you know. Firemen are heroic. I couldn't do it. Physically. I tried, but my feet wouldn't budge. I was glued to the railing. So I went home and decided I'd come back and kill myself the next day wearing tracky bottoms or whatever. But when I woke up, I kept the uniform on as a coat of armour. As long as I was dressed as a fireman, I had to be a hero. I had no choice in the matter. As he was speaking, it dawned who he was. Involuntarily, I let out a short gasp of air. I reached out and hugged him. Partly because I thought that was what he wanted, but mostly because I felt free. The guilt I'd been carrying, the regret in not going after him, finally shed. I'm so happy you're alive. Other course attendees looked over in that way as British often do. Looking and listening, but putting on an exaggerated performance of absolutely not looking, and most certainly being absorbed in other conversations and actions. Hey, you'll never guess what I do for a living now. You're a fireman? Yeah, bloody hell, you are a smart one. Seemed obvious. You said I'd never guess, mentioned the fireman's outfit. It was the easy answer. I said it with a snobbishness I hadn't intended, and his expression soured. Not to be a prick, like. His features softened, and he laughed. (laughs) Now you sound, mate. Uh, Look, uh, can I get your number? I didn't want to give him my number. Of course, I was elated he hadn't taken his life and was doing well for himself, but I didn't make a habit of giving out my number, and my gut told me it was a bad idea. Keep him out of your life. You'll be a dad soon. You don't need this. Still, I knew I'd sound like an arsehole if I refused. So for the sake of keeping the peace, I entered my digits into his phone. I could always ignore his calls, though I hoped the whole number thing was politeness and he wasn't actually going to use it. That's great, mate. You wouldn't believe the amount of times I wanted to send you a quick text and ask for advice. You've turned into a bit of a... Well, not a god, but... 
what's the word? Uh, you know, uh, someone you really look up to. You, you know how people wear those wristbands saying, what would Jesus do? I just found myself thinking, what would... Um, uh, he looked down at his phone, read my name. Thinking, what would Wesley do? Oh, wow. Well, I'm flattered. I'm going to get that tattooed on my arm as soon as we're finished. WWWD. But I think I'll have Wesley as the whole word, so it's like WW Wesley D. I started laughing. Was he for real? Oh, seriously, mate, I'm going to do it. You don't understand how much you've helped. The fireman approached again after the course had finished, as I was heading towards the car park. Well, that was a waste of time. Yeah, guess so. It's not as if I'm going to stop speeding just because I've seen a couple of car crashes. I've seen worse than that on YouTube, you know what I mean? I did know what he meant, but I didn't altogether agree. Look, want to grab some beers? There's a good pub less than a mile from here. Sounds like a bad idea, though I appreciate the irony. Besides, I've got to go back to the missus. Women, eh? He said it with a grin and no elaboration. He stopped grinning when it became clear I didn't agree. Obviously, I was only joking about the drinking and driving. Irony, like you said, but, um... But before you go, I need some more advice. Go on. But he didn't go on. He kept quiet, eyes intensely fixed on me. Sorry, I don't think I understand. I want more advice. About? Anything. Well, that threw me. I hadn't had someone come to me for general advice. What did that even mean? I don't know. Never drink and drive. Okay. He took his car keys from his pocket, VW logo emblazoned on the black key fob, looked at the keys like they were complicit in drinking and driving, as if they'd have to work together to prevent it from happening. I've got it. 100%. It'll make some nights out difficult, but I'm never drinking and driving again. Neither of us moved. He looked like he was on the cusp of saying something else, but didn't. I should get going. Have a good one. He held up his phone. I'll text you. I hoped not. I forced a smile and got into my Ford Focus. The day after, I received a photo message from an unknown number. A thick forearm, freshly tattooed black ink that read... W.W. Wesley Do. A text followed. They said W.W. Wesley Do looks better than W.W. Wesley D. You like it? Fucking mint, innit? I told him it was indeed fucking mint, but didn't point out the glaring omission. Wesley with a T, not Wesley as in snipes. The next text from the fireman was innocent enough, though a little manic in tone. Brown or white bread? Which is best? I need to know. Ever the good neighbour, I did my best to help, explaining that it really depends on the purpose of the bread. Is it for sandwiches? If so, what's the filling? Is it for toast? Is it for breadcrumbs that go atop a dish to create a crispy texture? Works great with macaroni cheese. My mother taught me that one. I soon learned succinct replies with concrete answers and no follow-up questions were best. The fireman panicked if I couldn't answer his questions, often followed by over-the-top self-deprecation and loathing. He'd scold himself for the lack of clarity and poor communication. Not quite how he put it, but it's what he meant. When he'd first said he often wondered what I'd do in certain situations, 
I'd assumed he was exaggerating. Then again, I'd thought the same about the tattoo and had photographic evidence to the contrary. That or he'd gone to some lengths to photoshop it and I didn't have him pegged as that kind of guy. But what would Wesley do was no joke, as the influx of text messages over the next week would attest. The fireman's queries varied from trivialities to existentialism. I didn't have time to reply to them all, but I did what I could, though both my boss and Anne-Marie grew suspicious of the time I was spending on my phone. I thought the frequency of texts would stop once the novelty wore off, but after a week they were still coming in thick and fast. And the week after that, and the week after that. I can't recall each text the fireman sent, but some of the highlights paraphrased from memory were If someone steals your parking space, is it okay to key their car? Can headaches cause cancer? I'm alone and hungry, what do I do? He later explained he'd written angry and not hungry, but autocorrect had interfered. Do you use the microwave more for cooking or reheating? Is there life after death? Is it morally okay to kill wasps? Why? Will humans ever walk on the sun? What's the minimum amount of alcohol you can safely order in a pub? If I do something bad in front of my cat, will it know? And is there a way it can tell others? By the third week of continuous text messages, I explained the situation to Anne-Marie, who'd grown curious and concerned about my newly found text messaging addiction. I'd skipped the part about the tattoo, That was a level of crazy she didn't need to be burdened with. Just ignore his messages. He'll soon get the hint. And for most people, it was good advice. But where the fireman was concerned, I didn't think it would be enough. Then block his number. Go into Vodafone, they'll do it for you. Again, sound advice. But I was pretty sure the fireman would simply text from another number, then get all upset I'd blocked him. And how would I go about explaining it? Sorry, pal, I know I saved your life, but I don't want to stay in touch. I could come up with some lame excuse about how it must have happened accidentally, how it was as much a mystery to me as it was to him, but then normal communication would resume. Not that any of it was normal. Well, whatever you do, get rid of him. We have enough crazy in our life with Alan. We don't need any more. You know, he rang the other day, drunk as anything, ranting about how he was the better parent. The bloody nerve of that man. Anne-Marie was right. Her ex, Alan, was more crazy than either of us needed. But there was a kid involved, so it wasn't that simple. In the end, I drove down to the canal and threw the phone off the bridge. I was due an upgrade anyway, and it seemed the surest way to guarantee the fireman wouldn't bother me again. It felt poetic, too. The very place in which I'd saved him from suicide would kill our only channel of communication. Of course, now I realise that was just some bollocks I made up to justify to Anne-Marie throwing away a fancy handset. She wasn't impressed. What a dramatic, expensive, and beyond everything else, idiotic thing to do. Why didn't you just cut up the SIM card and buy another? It felt like the right thing to do didn't seem a good enough answer. So I nodded and admitted my idiocy. The years that followed gifted me with fatherhood. Two little girls, aged two and three, 
both at home with Anne-Marie wrapping Christmas presents and watching episodes of Noddy, whilst I pottered around Birmingham buying surprise gifts for Anne-Marie. I was on my way to Moore Street to catch the train home when a tramp with a long ginger beard and dreadlocks approached. He wore a green army jacket and sold copies of the big issue out of a navy shoulder bag. Over his jacket, he sported a red, big-issue-seller, official vendor waistcoat as way of credentials. I opened my wallet to see what I could offer him. Coppers and tens. Seemed insulting, so I slipped him a fiver. Merry Christmas. He passed me a copy of the big issue and reached for change. There's no need. I went on my way, or at least tried to. He grabbed hold of my coat sleeve and pulled me back. My heart sped up, but instead of fight or flight, there was panic. Am I going to have to fight a homeless dude? I know you. You must be mistaken. He threw his shoulder bag to the floor and rolled up his right sleeve to reveal a tattoo under a thick layer of hair and dirt. W.W. Wesley Do. I considered making up some BS about how he'd got the wrong guy, how the ink meant nothing to me. But what was the point? He knew who I was. That was obvious. Unlike him, I'd barely changed. Had the same work-safe haircut and clothes straight out of the next catalogue. I'm fucking ruined, mate. I went to pieces when you stopped texting. I, I didn't know what to do. I had no one to turn to, so I did something terrible. I, I fucking hurt my ex's fella. I turned up there, pissed as shit, and fucking battered him. Put him in a wheelchair. I tried to back away, but his grip was strong and eyes manic. I know what I did was wrong and I did time and all, but when I got out, everything was gone. It was worse than before. My ex and the kids, they upped and moved house, got a restraining order against me and that. Not that it fucking matters. I don't even know where they live. I've tried looking for them, asking around, but no one gives me the time of day. It's understandable with what I've done, but the fire service, they wouldn't have me back. I, I've got nothing. I've truly nothing, mate. What should I do? I couldn't get involved. Not again. The stakes had changed. I had kids. It was someone else's turn to play the hero. I removed another fiver from my wallet. Please, take this. Buy yourself a coffee and some sandwiches. Is this your way of trying to get rid of me? You're paying me off? He let go of my coat and took the money. What does it say, mate? What does my tattoo say? Read it. It says W.W. Wesley do. Right. And what does it mean? It means, what would Wesley do? And it's something I've been thinking about, but there's been no answers, not for years, not when I've needed them, not when I've needed you. But you're here now. You always come back to me, don't you? So now I'm asking, what should I do? Just buy the sandwich, the coffee, some cigarettes. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Yes, you do. Of course you do. You know, mate, you fucking know. You knowing is the only thing that's kept me alive. You're the reason I'm still here. If I didn't have this tattoo, this reminder of you, I'd have ended it long ago. I'm always thinking about ending it, you know what I mean? But then I remember what you said to me in Smack, and I can't do it. Being inside, though, that was the hardest. I thought about hanging myself every week, but then I think, nah, nah, mate, don't kill yourself. Wesley wouldn't do that. I wish I could help you. I looked towards Moore Street Station. But I have to go. You have to stay. You have to tell me what to do. 
I began walking towards the station, stopped at the traffic lights. Train station staff stood on the opposite side of the road, and police officers. They wouldn't let him bother me. If you're not going to help now, then you should never have spoken to me. Should have left me to die. Everything I've done since is on you, the good and the bad. So please, you've got to help me make things right. You've got to help me get my life back on track. My fists clenched, cheeks hot. I'd done him a favor, helped him through a tough patch. I hadn't absolved him of responsibility. Everything he's done is on me. Yeah, right. I'm just a guy. I'm nothing special and I can't help you. He pointed to his tattoo. The traffic lights turned to green. What would Wesley do? You're more than a guy. Westley. Westley with a T. Fuck's sake. I crossed the road. He didn't follow at first, stood pointing and looking at his tattoo, then chased after me. You can't leave me like this. Not my lowest. What if something happens? He'll be on you, Wesley. I can't help you. I had attracted the attention of onlookers who likely wondered what the hell I had against the homeless. I'm not the person who saved you, okay? I have other priorities now. Kids, a wife, a family. I wish you the best, but make no mistake, what you do is on you, not me. I entered the train station. Police blocked the fireman. Don't walk away from me. You come back here while I'm talking to you. I don't want to do something terrible again. I, I mean it, mate. I looked back at the ticket barrier, the police physically restraining him. It won't be my life I take, Westley, but it'll be on you. We'll meet again. We always do. Somehow, someway, I swear to God I'll find you. And you'll pay, Westley. You'll fucking pay. I was scared of what the fireman might do. As I took the train home, I couldn't shift his face from my mind. A combination of desperation, fear, and hatred. There's an old saying about desperate men doing desperate things. Another about not picking a fight with a man who has nothing left to lose. Both applied. Which was why I decided we had to leave the Midlands. Now, that might sound like a rash decision, and true enough, it was unlikely the fireman actually knew where I lived and unlikelier still he'd be able to get to me given his circumstances. But unlikely wasn't impossible, and I wasn't taking chances. And honestly, I'd wanted to move for some time. Too many bad decisions and memories in and around Birmingham. So on the train, somewhere between Rowley Regis and Old Hill, I called Anne-Marie and we made arrangements for her and the girls to temporarily live with her parents. It wasn't as simple as it sounds. To put it mildly, Anne-Marie was pissed off. How could you be so stupid? How could you put our lives in such danger? I didn't point out that I'd only gone into Birmingham to buy her a present, and I definitely didn't mention it was unfair to blame me. You don't tell someone apoplectic that they're wrong and you're right. You don't tell them you did your best, that at least you tried. Not in the moment. Anne-Marie and the girls couldn't live with her parents forever, so I started applying for jobs up north and in Scotland. 
I landed a job in Edinburgh, and soon we relocated to Dunfermline. Found a house in a lovely spot. A public park, the girls' primary school, and town centre all within walking distance. The timing worked out well, too. Anne-Marie's ex, Alan, passed away a few months prior, and Anne-Marie gained full custody of Rebecca. And that's where we are now, two years on. Me, Anne-Marie, and the girls. There's also Sally, or the Madame, as she's often called. A grey Persian rescue cat. My apology to Anne-Marie for everything. The girls are besotted with the Madame. I like her too when she's not scratching up the carpet and furniture. I'm glad of the distance between us and the fireman, but I often worry it isn't enough. That we might have to move to Europe or further. I've been looking at jobs overseas, making inquiries... But even then, I worry he'd find me. It's probably irrational. I haven't seen him since Birmingham, and I've no reason to believe he's seen me either. Perhaps he finally met his end, became one with the canal. Or maybe he found another Wesley to offer him guidance. I don't know. I don't know much these days. Irrational or not, it doesn't stop me freaking out whenever I hear a fire engine. It's siren a scream inside my head. Sometimes sirens squeal when there's nothing there. I feel my chest tighten whenever I see firemen. Heaven forbid I'm ever in a fire. I'd sooner attempt to rescue everyone single-handedly than call the fire brigade. I imagine if a fireman tried to pull me away from a fire, I'd just take my chances and jump right in, dance with the flames. It's not healthy, is it? Anne-Marie says it isn't that my mind isn't quite right, which is why I saw a doctor the other week. Told her about the sirens that aren't really there and these weird dreams I've been having. She was worried about me. Said I displayed signs of PTSD, irritability and explosive anger. I don't know what that last part was about. I'm not angry at all. Probably because of the dreams. She wants to run some tests next week. It's probably nothing. The dreams vary from night to night, sometimes barely perceptible, a blurred mess of sound and colour. But other nights, they're real. Like real life, real. In the dreams, I'm searching for the fireman, determined to find him before he finds me. And I know what I have to do when I find him. And you know too. Because even though it defies logic, I feel responsible for everything he's done since that night in Smack, and everything he continues to do. Good or bad, it really is on me. In the dream, I drive down to Birmingham, or sometimes I take the train. Once I even hitchhike. I'm not sure what that was about. I'm still trying to figure it out. In the most vivid dream, I rented a room from Airbnb for two weeks even though I knew I'd only need it a night. I kitted it out in plastic, created a kill room straight out of Dexter, and headed into the city centre where I found the fireman. He was easy enough to find, still selling the big issue, though he'd moved from Moore Street to Snow Hill, and he was easy to deceive, too. I told him I'd done a lot of soul-searching and thinking, and finally had an answer. I could tell him what to do. He said he'd never doubted me, that he'd known I would come through. 
Then he hugged me tight, kissed my cheek and rolled up his sleeve revealing the tattoo, like it was our secret, like my name wasn't spelled wrong, like he didn't smell of rotten fish. He was ecstatic as we walked through the city centre, past the library, up Broad Street and towards the rented apartment. He even started whistling at one point. He was so happy I almost felt bad about what I was doing. But not really. I'd weighed up my options. It was the only way to ensure my family's safety. A few minutes before arriving, I offered him a drink, and as anticipated, he gladly accepted, glugging it down. The timing was perfect. The sleeping tablets kicked in just as we got to the apartment block, and whilst I had to carry him up two flights of stairs, the bloody lift was out of order. It wasn't a big deal. No one was about. No one saw us. In the kill room, I strapped him to a table and started slashing him with the US Marine Corps K-Bar I'd ordered off the dark web. At first, I was simply letting off steam, plunging the knife in and out of his chest and stomach. It sunk in so smoothly. But after a minute, it was down to business. I severed the jugular veins and carotid arteries in his neck, just as I'd seen in countless online videos. Only there was more blood than expected and I started panicking when the apartment buzzer rang. But I ignored it, and eventually whoever was at the door left. As I was preparing to dispose of the body, I couldn't get over how easy it had been to kill him, and how elated I felt, because honestly, I thought I might feel regret or sadness, but it was all pure joy and relief. I used a pair of pliers to individually remove each tooth, finger, and toe, then shaved his body hair. I filled up the bathtub with sodium hydroxide, at first dissolving the body, then teeth, fingers, toes and hair. It takes longer than you'd think, but I'm patient. After, I calmly placed the rest of the body in the bathtub and left the apartment. That evening, I returned to what remained of the skeleton shell. I packed it into a large holiday suitcase, padded it out with cast iron weights, then cleaned the apartment. Later, I drove to the canal and set us both free. Anne-Marie says not to worry, that the doctors can fix me. But I wonder if it's too late, if I've already done something terrible. And if I have, if I truly am beyond repair, and this time, it's on him. In our final tale, we come face to face with the most corrupting force in the history of the world. So satanic, it destroyed our youth for generations to come. I am, of course, talking about rock and roll, the music of Lucifer himself. Or so people used to believe. But in this tale, shared with us by author Keith McDuffie, we discover there might be something to the hysterical panic that used to be elicited by the likes of Black Sabbath and Kiss. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Ellie Hirschman, 
Dan Zapula, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Nicole Goodnight, Addison Peacock, Graham Rowett, Alexis Bristow, and Jesse Cornett. So pull on your leather jacket and throw up those devil horns, because it's time for one last foray into the music of hell before confirmation. never forget the sound evil made when it died in the Baxter's house one night in the fall of 1982. The basement of the rectory at St. Ambrose had that smell, the one that appears to be common amongst cellars of the houses of the Lord, of decades-old candle wax and spent wicks, mold-imbued books, of rotted flowers and palm wreaths, that smell. I'd once thought it unique to our chosen parish at the time, but it's not. And any time I happened upon it in some other basement, sometimes in another church, I'd be reminded of CCD. Some people called it catechism. I suppose it could have been called Sunday school, except in our town it was held on Tuesday nights. Tuesday school? Not exactly the same ring to it, I'd say. So, CCD. Sounds like some kind of mental condition now that I think of it. Apropos, if you don't mind me saying so. Needless to say, I did not look forward to Tuesday nights. The last year of CCD for me was centered around preparing for confirmation. I won't get into the details for you non-Catholics, and to be quite honest, I can't remember what to tell you about it anyway. I suppose it was to confirm one's faith in God and the church, confirm beliefs, confirm that you bought the whole damn thing, one of them, one of the flock. For me, it served only as confirmation that, following that fall, my Tuesday nights henceforth would carry with it only the aroma of glorious, sweet freedom. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Ramalama ding dong. Amen. Father Jacobs, the presiding priest at the time, did not conduct CCD at St. Ambrose. The old guy would show up from time to time, sure, when he wasn't busy doing God knows what on a Tuesday evening. Probably better off pulling some numbered letters out of a bingo cage, really. But for the most part, it was just us ten kids and Mr. Baxter. Of all the teachers I had for CCD throughout the years, Mr. Baxter won the prize for being, shall we say, the most devout. And this includes the likes of Sister Estelle, a decrepit, miserable old thing hearkening from the days of when my mother attended Catholic school in a neighboring town. No lie, Sister Estelle, or Sister Est Hell as we called her, she carried a yardstick along her back like a rifle on a cattle rancher. I've since learned that it served more as a bullshit deterrent than anything else, but God saved the poor soul warranting its unsheathing. Thankfully, I never bore witness to it. Warren Baxter's boys, Mark and Jason, attended this particular CCD class along with me and seven others our age. They were homeschooled, so I can't say any of us really knew much about them beyond the walls of that basement, and that the poor bastards had their dad as a teacher, not just Tuesday nights, but every fucking day. Mr. Baxter sort of reminded me of uh, Christopher Cross. You know, sailing takes me away and, and, and ride like the wind. You know that guy? Well, not to mention, he also carried a beaten acoustic guitar with him anytime I saw him. He certainly wasn't an old guy, 
but he sure had what I guess you could say was a, an old way of thinking when it came to the education of religion. He had a habit of taking it upon himself to detour from the illustrated Jesus textbooks and remind us of all the things that could make up mortal sin. You might think that means killing and stealing and raping and all that sort of thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. He'd remind us weakly that masturbating was a mortal sin that was a sure ticket to hell. Even thinking about jerking off, it was like you might as well give Satan himself a handy. Because, son, it's just like knocking on his door with that hand. I guess Mrs. Baxter was a sure help of keeping her husband heavenworthy, at least before their divorce. Mr. Baxter was a parishioner at the church, but he also sang and played guitar at Sunday Mass. Considering the limited source material, he actually wasn't half bad. I'd been taking guitar lessons at the time, and I knew he wasn't just some two-bit hack. He played for us a couple of nights at class, which was a welcome reprieve from the mundane Bible verse analysis, even if it wasn't exactly Clapton we were listening to. The man dug his music, no question of that. And on the second-to-last class of the year, he took it to a new level. The record player sat in the center of the largest table. Not an odd sight, really. We'd listened to hymns and such before, and even been forced to, dear God, sing along to them. But there was something very different about it this time. Something special. When my eyes caught it, I couldn't restrain myself. Zeppelin! <laughs> Paul Morley, my best friend at the time, saw it too. Led Zeppelin 4. Its unmistakable album cover, featuring that painting of an old man lugging a bundle of sticks, sat among a few recognizable others. ACDC's Highway to Hell, Queen's The Game, classics today, purely defining then. A few kids started in with Stairway to Heaven before Mr. Baxter shut them down. Sit down, everyone. Yes, I'm going to play some of these. Just a little. But then, I have an important story for you. He slipped Led Zeppelin IV out of its sleeve and placed it onto the turntable. Man, I thought this is going to be great. I prepared myself for the sweet sounds of Robert Plant belting out his Hey, hey, mom! Rolling into Jimmy Page on the axe and Bonham on the skins. It was already playing in my head. Instead, we got something else entirely. Mr. Baxter turned on the player and moved the needle up a bit onto the platter. He put it down a few times, giving us a little tease here and there of what we could have, should have been listening to in entirety. He finally got the stairway to heaven and let it play. Sweet release. About midway through the song, he turned the player off. What is this? Another lesson about not beating off, I thought. To 14-year-old me, it may as well have been. Now, listen to this. Okay, we all knew what was about to happen. Playing Stairway Backwards wasn't new. And then it all became painfully clear. Zeppelin, ACDC, Queen? I hadn't heard anything about that one yet. But most of us knew of the supposed hidden messages within the former two. And now Mr. Baxter was going to play them here, in the basement of a church. He spun the record counterclockwise, slowly by hand. Eventually, he got to the money shot, 
where Plant's voice seemed to sing out the words, My sweet Satan, along with some other things that don't sound quite so heavenly when you overanalyze the shit out of them. Except for the playing record, the room was silent. I don't think we quite knew what to make of it. Mr. Baxter, a guy who'd preached that the simple pleasures of alone time in a long hot shower was sinful, was playing verses about the devil in the Lord's house. I mean, what was next, a Ouija board? Once he was through with Zeppelin, he went on to Highway to Hell. The album cover alone should have burst into flames the moment it entered the parking lot, but he played it just the same. For a few minutes, singer Bon Scott became Scott Bon, or, or maybe it's Top Snob. You're supposed to hear something like, My name is Lucifer, somewhere in that backmasked garbage. But all I heard was blasphemy to some wholesome British-born rock and roll. Now, Queen was an interesting one. Played backwards, the lyrics, Another One Bites the Dust, becomes, It's fun to smoke marijuana. Great. So now that's evil, too? <laughs> My brother's days were numbered. <laughs> Mr. Baxter let chuckles and high-fives among us slide and stopped the turntable. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Why did I play these for you tonight? I don't know. To thank Jesus, the classes are almost over? Paula Spencer spoke up. Because they talk about the devil? Not exactly. We all looked at each other, clueless. That wasn't it? I mean, besides Freddie Mercury soloing in reverse about weed, what else was there? And I was sure, sure as shit stinks, that Baxter had his fair share of ganja in his days. Hell, at that moment, I was thinking he'd smoked a bowl before class. A couple of reasons. First, it's to make you aware... The things your generation is listening to, on the radio, on records and tapes, are deceiving you into falling out of love with God. But on the radio, it's not backwards. Paul wasn't having it, and neither was Randall. I don't even have a record player. Mr. Baxter shook his head in that these clueless kids sort of way. It doesn't matter. You heard it for yourself. It's still there. And the devil, he hid it there. We learned years ago, you don't groan at a teacher in CCD. But the restraint in the room was palpable. Oh, come on. So, Robert Plant is, is Satan? No. He's just one of many instruments. Like a guitar? <laughs> now that let loose a volley. All right, quiet down. Not like that. No, Randall. I mean they serve the Antichrist, though they may not know it. But because we can play this music this way, the devil's tricks are revealed. And they are in all of the music you're listening to. All the rock and roll, all the heavy metal. It's there, and he is trying to use it to deceive you into falling out of grace with God. So, what are we supposed to do? Stop listening to it. Forwards, backwards, on the radio or at home. These are all the new instruments of evil. And you should shun them just as you would any other mortal sin you've learned about in this class. Now, you'll think you have control over what you believe until it's too late and you stop coming to Mass. 
you stop loving Jesus and God and everything else that will bring you to everlasting life in heaven. Well, I was going to hell. Before he'd even finished his bummer of a diatribe, I'd started to think that if everlasting life in Satan's parlor meant a lot of Zeppelin and Rush and everything else that was candy to my ears, well, then I might just be okay with that. The second reason I played these for you, and this is very, very important. You listening? Most of us nodded. Never, and I mean never, do this on your own. I know it's tempting, a fun trick to show your friends, but do not do it. I played this here because we are safe in God's house, but at home or anywhere else, you are not, and the devil does not like when his tricks are revealed, and he will let you know. How? Mr. Baxter pulled out a chair, sat down, and leaned in. I'll tell you how. Because it happened to me. Mark and Jason can tell you. They were there. All eyes were on the two Baxter kids. Their eyes told us either they were mortified or terrified. And after what their father had to say, I'd go with the latter. A night a few months ago, Mark was playing one of these records in the cellar at home. I told him what I told you many times before. None of that music. The work of the devil. Sins against God, but he couldn't help himself. That's how it works. You let him in, and he won't let go. So I decided to show him what was hidden in those songs. I did the same thing I did here tonight. I stopped the record, and slowly I began to play it in reverse. And those same hidden messages were revealed. And then, he walked right through the room. Who? The devil. In the ensuing silence after Mark spoke, you could hear a guitar pick drop. Mr. Baxter nodded. He did. A dark figure, dressed in the darkest cloak I'd ever seen. He passed into the room. No face, just nothingness. Tears were streaming down our faces. We couldn't move. He glided closer to us, and we still could not move. He stopped just ten feet away from us, and he pointed right at me. And in a voice I'll never, ever forget, he said... He let the sentence hang in the air. I mean, this was some real campfire story shit. And I'm betting I wasn't alone in hankering for some roast marshmallows right about then. What a showman. No. No? That was it? No? Not, come with me, you're going to hell, or turn it up, man. I mean, I say that now, but to be quite honest with you, back then, I was shitting bricks. I'd been taught for years every manner of how the grip of evil might drag me down into a fiery pit of doom. You bet your ass I was saying the rosary every night, and had a small shrine to Virgin Mary in the corner of my bedroom. Now I was learning that this Satan fella came in a physical form like the grim fucking reaper if you pissed him off? I glanced over at the Baxter kids. My look said, this shit real? And their look was, this shit real. That did it. After an extra lap around the beads before bed that night, sleeplessness would be unavoidable.
The following Sunday morning, I was once again packed hip to hip between my mother and brother within our usual pew at St. Ambrose. The usual congregation was there, including Mr. Baxter on guitar and frontman Father Jacobs. Paul, a four years running altar boy, was on the bells with Mark Baxter. I hadn't forgotten the story Mr. Baxter told earlier that week. How could he just continue on like that after seeing what he saw? Or worse, what load of horseshit he fed to a mess of God-fearing and now for certain devil-fearing kids. I wasn't sure what was worse, that he went so far as to convince his own boys to play along so convincingly, or that they actually did see something that night. Paul caught up with me in the parking lot as the adults meandered around shaking hands with one another and secretly hoping that they'd get home in time for football. What's up? I shrugged. I had nothing. Hey, I talked to Mark earlier about what his dad said. What, about masturbating? He pushed me hard. I guess I deserved it. Oh, that devil shit. Paul, we're still at church. Paul's mother hissed from somewhere in the crowd. That woman could hear a hummingbird fart in a bison stampede. It's the parking lot, Mom. God, relax. If I talked to either of my parents the way that Paul did, all the prayers in the world wouldn't protect me from the evil that would ensue. The devil would walk right in and applaud. But Paul's exposure to the dictionary from hell came from none other than his own mother's mouth, and with certain regularity. I became fluent in the language by the time I was eight, from weekly summer sleepovers at the Morley house. He still swears it's true. You make him swear to God. (laughs) No, but he's not changing his story. Said a big person in a cloak sort of floated into the room and then back out again. What did he sound like? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Probably like, stop that shit now. His impression sounded more like Froggy from the Little Rascals than some dark being from the netherworld. Come to think of it, that would actually be pretty terrifying. Would someone please get that poor boy a cough drop, for God's sake? Paul? Sorry, Ma. I tried it, you know. The record thing? Nothing happened. It's a bunch of bullshit. Well, duh, yeah. Oh, you thought it was real? I mean, creepy story, but no way that's really gonna happen. He was just trying to scare us. Don't you think we'd hear of it happening to someone else already? I mean, I did it at my cousin's house a few months ago. What happened? I gave him a look that told him that his stupid question was going forever unanswered. Paul pointed to the parking lot behind me. Look, there he is. Mark Baxter was still clothed in his altar boy whites, carrying his father's guitar case to their station wagon. Paul gave me a nudge and started in his direction. Hey, Mark. Mark was a quiet kid, but not shy. More of a a rebellious sort, I guess you could say. If he'd been in a traditional school like the rest of us, no doubt he would have been one of the cool kids who took no shit from anyone and gave a pile of it to the teachers. There were few occasions where you'd see him without bruises or a black eye, a sure sign he hadn't backed down from trouble. It was that attitude that made the story he was holding on to so compelling. What's up? Hey, Keith. I held up a hand in greeting. Swear to God that story's true. The equivalent of a religious double-dog dare. Mark shut the rear door and leaned against it. I'm not doing that. You know I won't do that. 
So it's a bunch of bull... I don't care if you won't take my word for it. It's what I saw. How come it never happened to Keith? He said he did it at his cousin's house, and nobody creepy came drifting through the room, except maybe his Aunt Helen. Sorry, Keith, she's like a witch or something. I guess you're lucky. Maybe it's the house. Well, Paul seemed to back down at that. Then the wheels started to turn. Let's do a sleepover, then. Uh, sleepover? What are we, ten? Well, then just have us over at night. Your dad's got the records already. We just play them in the same room on the same record player. If the devil doesn't show up, then it's a bunch of crap. Mark's cool demeanor warmed at that. My father really doesn't like people over. And it's not a bunch of crap. I want to see for myself. So do you. Right, Keith? I did my best to hide my real answer to that one. Instead, Mark did the honors. No, you don't. And I don't either. B.S. Whatever. Paul turned and walked away. I gave another silent wave to Mark before taking off as well. I was only just getting ready for bed when something rapped against my bedroom window. It was early, but it was a school night, and I knew just who it was. I opened the window to Paul's shit-eating grin. Let's go. Now? Where? It's a school night, man. Baxter's. What? Mark wants us over. I thought his dad wouldn't let us. We're just gonna go visit. Come on. I shut the window in his face. Paul kept right on talking. If you don't come out now, I'll go knock on your parents' window and tell them you called me over. I flung the window back open. No, you wouldn't. And they're not even in bed anyway. Fine. Then I'll go knock on the door. He wasn't bluffing. He'd done this to me before, and my folks fell for his Eddie Haskell routine every single time, hook, line, and sinker. As usual, Paul was going to get his way. I, as usual, was not. The Baxter house was walking distance away, but since Paul had his bike with him, I took mine as well. There's something about walking while someone rides circles around you that feels a bit degrading. We threw our bikes onto the Baxter's lawn. I headed for the front door, but Paul started around the back. Where are you going? Mark's window. Jesus Christ, he doesn't know we're coming? Nah, you heard him. He wasn't going to have us over. So we'll just come over. I really should have made for my bike and headed back home. I started to weigh the punishment I'd get from my parents due to Paul's threats against Mr. Baxter's wrath should we knock on the wrong window. Once I got home, Paul would make good on what he said. I'd be grounded for a week and more, and the process would repeat until he got his way. I thought it better to see it through and put an end to Paul's obsession right then. None of the shades were drawn in the Baxter's single-story ranch, and we found Mark hanging out in one of the rooms with his door shut. The lights were on and he was laying in bed, sort of huddled in a ball back to the window. He was still clothed and clearly not sleeping, but I tried to convince Paul otherwise. He's sleeping. Let's go. Paul ignored me and gave the window a knock. Mark sprang up from the bed and turned to the door. I... 
I'm just praying, Dad. I promise. Paul knocked again. Mark stiffened, snapped around, and was greeted by Paul's smart-ass wave. My look said, I know. I'm sorry. What can you do? It's Paul. The window unlocked and opened. What are you doing here? Mark licked at a cut below his lip, and his face was sunburned red. Always meeting trouble. Man, who'd you fight this time? Did you finally fight Felix? Maybe I'll fight you for coming here and knocking on my window. What do you want? Play us the records. Go play them yourself. We want to see what you saw. Come on. You really don't. Just let us in. If you don't, I'll just go knock on the door and tell your dad you called us over. Right from the Morley playbook. No! Just... Fine. Meet me at the back, by the bulkhead. Mark lowered the window. Paul was already on his way to the back of the house, but I watched Mark push his bedroom door open carefully, look around before edging himself into the hallway, and then pushing the door shut without a sound. The bulkhead was a rusty two-door entryway set into the house's foundation. A few minutes passed before the inside latch was screeched open like a prison lock, and its doors creaked open. I could barely make out a person standing in the dark. I sure as hell hoped it was Mark. Paul nudged me ahead of him. Either his night sight was better than mine and he was sure of who it was, or he was just as blind and I was a shield. Get in. The bulkhead led into a concrete-floored basement, pitch black but for a crack of faint light from beneath a closed door. The smell of mildew and machine oil was unmistakably workshopian. I confirmed this when I bumped into what I figured was a long workbench. A few tools clattered onto wood and clanged against the floor. Shh! My dad's room is right above here. Where's Jason? He's staying with my mom. Mark opened the door into a finished part of the basement. It was all dark but for a single lamp on and an end table against a torn couch. Gray Berber carpet covered the floor from wall to wall, stained in the corners with water damage. French drains were always an afterthought back then, and not one easily or cheaply rectified. An old pool table took up the place of honor, consuming most of the room. Against one wall was a Radio Shack brand realistic stereo. Of course it had a turntable. Mark shut the door behind us as quietly as he had his bedroom door. We're under the living room here. We should be okay. Paul already had the turntable cover off and was flipping through the sleeved album stacked vertically beneath it. Which one did you play when you saw that thing? Mark hurried over and pushed Paul aside. Get out of there. My dad has them all organized. He'll kill me if we mess it up. Mark pulled an album from the shelf and looked at its cover. Admiring it? Fearing it? I couldn't tell. This one. In this room, right? Mark nodded. Where did he come from? Mark pointed to an opening without a door. The laundry room? In my house, that's where my dad keeps his booze. Are you sure it wasn't just your mom? What? No. My parents are divorced, stupid. So maybe it was your mom. 
Mark said nothing, but the seething in his posture was palpable. At that moment, I felt sorry for the both of them. Mark eased the platter out from the sleeve and placed it on the turntable, then turned the receiver on. He grabbed the needle and halted before placing it down. I don't think you want me to play this backwards. It ruins the record anyway. No, we want you to play disco so we can dance. Just play it. I want to see the devil you said you saw. But what if... But what if what? We see him and he tells us no again? So what? Then we know and we won't do it again. Mark looked back at both of us, then placed the needle down. He seemed to know just where it had to go. This can play the record backwards on its own. I don't need to do it by hand. He flipped a lever on the turntable and stepped far away, eyes not leaving that laundry room door. At first, seconds of silence, but for the popping crackle of worn vinyl. Then the speakers came to life. Sure enough, the words of Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven began to blast in reverse. I was caught off guard at how loud it was, on account of Mark's fear of alerting his father to the goings-on. It caught Mark by surprise as well. Shit! Mark stumbled to the stereo. Someone stood in the doorway to the dark laundry room. Mark froze. We all did. Satan had come. And then he spoke. What did I tell you? We said nothing. I felt the urge to run, but my legs were no better than bowling balls on Twizzler sticks. Paul backed up and was stopped short by the pool table. The record kept on playing. What did I tell you? No. No. Nobody over. Nobody. Mr. Baxter stepped into the room. He was seething. He was nothing like I'd seen him before, and he was clearly loaded. And are you... are you playing that again? After what happened last time? Dad, I... I'm sorry. They just showed up. I didn't know... Shut up! You two, get out of here the way you came! Through this all, the record continued to play, but all I could hear was Mr. Baxter's rage. And you! Get over here! Paul and I turned tail and had blasted through the door into the workshop. Paul shut the door behind him. Holy shit! His dad is... he's crazy! Let's get the hell out of here! For once, I was willing to follow Paul's lead. As the bulkhead lock slid open, I heard Mr. Baxter's anger turn up to eleven, while Robert Plant carried on. How many lessons do I need to teach you, Mark? Another one? And another? Come here! No! I couldn't move. I knew that plea all too well. To leave or stand idly by knowing what was sure to come next would be as damaging as what that bastard was about to do. What are you doing? Let's go! Paul flew out into the yard. I turned and opened the basement door. Mr. Baxter had Mark pinned against the wall by the stereo, his arm cocked back with a fist. The record skipped. I'd say it was comically timed to my entrance, but the situation was anything but. I've carried on a lot about how strange Mr. Baxter was, how he seemed to thrive on using the fear of damnation as a demented teaching tool to kids who had been taught throughout their lives that hell was no place to wind up. 
Throughout lessons, failing in everything but illustrating the absurdity of it all, he'd been kind, he'd been patient and good, and seemingly willing to volunteer to God. In that moment, the fog had lifted. Like with the ridiculous things he preached, he had fully veiled the truth of himself. Mr. Baxter's head snapped in my direction. I thought I told you to! My mouth opened, but nothing came out. My breath caught in my chest. My eyes were no longer looking at Mr. Baxter or Mark. The anger that had been blazing within them turned to absolute terror, trained on the open laundry room door. The being floated into the room. Mr. Baxter dropped his arm and flattened himself against the wall next to his son. The record played on. Tattered brown robes draped over what was mostly human-shaped, drifting about it with a non-existent wind. Swirls of debris and filth floated within the gaps of the cloth, though they could have been flies, as the sounds of Led Zeppelin seemed to be drowned out by a skittering, hissing sound that bordered on radio static. There was no face, no real body parts at all, just a thing. I would say it stood about seven feet tall, but that wouldn't be quite accurate, because the best I could tell, it was floating. The thing drifted closer to the Baxters. Mark continued to cry. Mr. Baxter looked as though he might start. Neither one said a word. A long piece of the thing's robe lifted, as though carried by an arm that wasn't there, pointing at the abusive wretch against the wall. It spoke. No. Mr. Baxter broke down and slid to the floor. His mouth moved through the words of our father, though I couldn't hear him over the hissing, the music, and the throbbing in my head. Mark didn't follow suit. Instead, he ran over and stood beside me. No! Please! No! No, no, I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know you said no! I won't do it again, I won't do it again, I won't! Come! The small things floating within the swirl of robes darted to where Mr. Baxter lay huddled on the floor. There was no music, only the sound of what had begun to consume Mark's father within a cloud of black. Black which became solid, almost gelatinous and liquid. The mass took over Mr. Baxter's shape, writhing on the floor in what appeared to be pure agony. his face away. I still couldn't move at all. I have no idea how much time had passed before what had overcome Mr. Baxter once again became a cloud of airborne debris. On the floor, there was only another stain to match those in the corners, filling the room with the odor of stale urine. As though called back to their master, the debris drifted to where their robed thing hovered, wafting about it as they'd done before. It didn't go back to the laundry room. Instead, it was just gone, as was the music, just as was Warren Baxter. Outside, I wasn't at all surprised to see Paul and his bike long gone. I'd been inside with Mark for a long while after what had happened. He was a raw mess, as anyone would be. I helped him give a call to his mother, who lived about an hour away. I stayed about that long before walking my bike home. I was in no condition to ride. 
I'll, I'll just say he left me here. Nobody would believe me if... if I told them what really happened. What about his car? He walks a lot. Usually to the bar down the street. They'll believe that. I know Mom will. I could tell you I was terrified walking that stretch of road alone late at night after what I'd seen. In truth, I was relieved. For so long, I was told of mortal sins I thought frivolous as being the true path to hell. That simple, impure thoughts would destine me to a horrible eternity only a young teenage boy could imagine. How could such things measure in defiance of all that is good to the monstrous acts of murder, or of rape, or of beating one's own child? There was comfort in knowing that once the devil truly is in someone, he comes looking for that piece of him to take home. My house was in complete darkness. I threw my bicycle into the garage and entered through the back door, into the kitchen. At that hour, I was sure everyone was asleep. Where have you been? It was my father. The son of a bitch was standing in the doorway from the basement, in the dark. Ice cubes tinkled from his highball glass. I, I was just putting my bike away. No. You were out. All night. Dad, I- You're in your room! There was no point in carrying on. I did as he said and shut the door behind me. It was a school night, but I was not about ready to sleep. Sleep I knew wouldn't come at all. Not after the Baxters. Not after Dad. It would be another day of looking tired, looking terrible, all under the guise of looking tough. I heard my mother down the hall. What are you doing? What time is it? Your son. I'm getting my belt. Stephen, no. I turned on the small stereo in my room. Led Zeppelin IV was already mounted on the turntable. Affectionately played countless times in the past as I fought to sleep through a shroud of tears and pain. I placed the needle down, and as the door to my room opened, I began to turn it counterclockwise by hand. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. 
And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.